Well, good morning to each one. Greetings in Jesus' name. Certainly good to be here this morning. I enjoy getting around in other churches, but there's nothing like coming back home to Ebenezer, and uh, it just feels good, it feels right, it feels familiar. I certainly enjoyed the Sunday school lesson as well. I enjoy the the life of studying into the life of Solomon, and uh, and I'm just impressed with his story and how important it is to have a good focus in life. And um, it's so important that we have a good focus to keep us on the right path in life. And several months ago the Selective Service Committee made a suggestion that a message on non-resistance in daily life would be preached in, it, in each church throughout the conference. So I have agreed to take this assignment for our church here at Ebenezer. After thinking about this title for a while, I thought that maybe before we look at the practical side of non-resistance, it would be good to first refresh our minds on the doctrine of non-resistance. You know, to be a non-resistant person or a non-resistant people in daily life, we must first be convinced that the doctrine of non-resistance is a true Bible teaching. And I plan, if the Lord wills, to share several messages on non-resistance. Many of the thoughts that I will be sharing today and in future messages come from a book written by John Koblenz, and the title is Love and Non-Resistance, God's Plan for the Church. So this morning I want to consider Old Testament foundations for non-resistance. Turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5. I'd like to begin by reading Matthew 5, 38 through 48. This morning I'm going to be doing quite a bit of reading from the scripture, and I invite you to follow along. But here in Matthew 5, <clears throat> excuse me, here in Matthew 5, Jesus is teaching the multitudes. And what he is teaching is different from what the people knew as right and good. And so we'll begin at Matthew 5, verse 38. Ye have heard that it, it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. But if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? 
do not even the publican so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Here we find Jesus teaching a new principle, a new way of life, a different way to respond to evil, a way that has never been practiced before. For this multitude of people, all they knew and practiced was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That is what the law said to do. This is what they practiced. This is what dad and mom did. This is what their grandparents did, their neighbors, their friends. For this multitude of people, it felt right and good to love their neighbor and hate their enemy. This is what they do. This is what they practice. Today, many view the doctrine of non-resistance as a contradiction to or a reversal of the Old Testament practice of justice, civil government, and warfare. You know, it is true that Old Testament and New Testament practices are different in these areas, but yet there's a place where the old and the new agree. Yes, even in warfare and non-resistance, we find principles that agree, that mesh. You see, the same God instituted both testaments and outlined both plans. And this God we know is altogether right, he's steadfast, and he's unchanging in all his ways. The civil changes that came about with the change of the testaments do not reflect a change of God who commanded them. They simply reflect a greater revelation of God. The change in the testaments, in other words, is part of an unfolding plan, not a new plan, but an unfolding plan. And above and behind this unfolding plan is our sovereign God. Seeing God's sovereignty is key to understanding his ways. Being sovereign, God is bound to no man or to no one but himself. He may do as he commands, set up and put down, give life and kill. He is free in a way beyond our mortal comprehension. He is the most high God whose power and wisdom and authority have not one limitation or lack of restraint. This is the God who commanded Israel to kill and commands the church to avenge not. Both testaments were necessary in fulfilling God's plan, including both war and non-resistance. And I believe for us to understand this, for it to make any sense, we must first believe that God is sovereign. For a few minutes, let's consider several passages that remind us that God is sovereign as he works with rulers, nations, and individuals. Turn, if you would, to Daniel chapter 4. In the book of Daniel, we read about King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon. At this time of Israel's history, King Nebuchadnezzar has taken Israel into captivity. Now we know that Nebuchadnezzar was an un ungodly king, but yet in the book of Jeremiah, God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. And God had a special experience for proud Nebuchadnezzar. 
It started out with a dream that only a young Hebrew man could interpret. This special experience included eating grass and sleeping outdoors for seven years. But after this unique outdoor experience, Nebuchadnezzar shares a beautiful testimony which is full of God and his sovereignty. So let's pick up reading there in Daniel 4. I'd like to start reading at 34, verse 34. And at the end of the days, now this is after his experience in the field as a beast, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand, or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added upon me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are true, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Isn't that a beautiful testimony of God and his sovereignty. Nebuchadnezzar had a real grasp of God and his sovereignty. Turn now to Deuteronomy 32. I'd like to read part of a song of Moses. Deuteronomy 32, we'll begin reading at verse 9 and read through 43. But this chapter is a song that Moses sang to the elders of Israel just before his death. And this song, again, speaks strongly of God's sovereignty. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. If I wet my glittering sword and my hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and will reward them that hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh. And that with the blood of the slain and of the captives from the beginning of revenges unto the enemy. Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries, and he, I'm sorry, and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. The sovereignty of God is made known not only to rulers, but also to nations. And we see that it's made known not only to the wicked, but to the righteous as well. God faithfully declares his sovereignty at every level of existence in every age of time. Understanding that God is sovereign in all his ways 
is the first step in understanding the doctrine of non-resistance. As we grasp, even in a small way, that God is sovereign, we can rest in the fact that all of God's commands are right and good. The command to kill in the Old Testament as well as the command to resist not evil in the New Testament. Let's consider what the Old Testament says about the sanctity of human life. Now I'm going to be doing quite a bit of reading and I'm not going to make comment between the the different passages. So we'll begin in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. What What does the Old Testament say about the sanctity of human life? Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Now turn over to chapter 2. I'd like to read verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And move over to chapter 4. I'd like to begin reading there at verse 8, Genesis 4, 8. We'll read through 12. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I, am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath openeth her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And so now turn over to chapter 9 of Genesis. This Here we find Noah and his family. They have just came out of the ark. And so we come down to chapter 9, verse 6. God reminding Noah of the sanctity of human life. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And so now turn over to Exodus 20, verse 13. We're into the uh, Ten Commandments here. Exodus 20, 13, thou shalt not kill. And you can move over to chapter 21 of Exodus, verse 12. I'd like to read 12 through 14. He that smiteth a man so that he die shall be surely put to death. And if a man lie not in wait, but God deliver him unto his hand, then I will appoint thee a place whither he shall flee. But if a man presumptuously 
I'm sorry, but if a man come presumptuously upon his neighbor to slay him with guile, thou shalt take him from mine altar that he may die. And then move down to verse 22 of Exodus 21. If man strive and hurt a woman with child, so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished, according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. And if any mischief follows, then, shall, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. We'll stop reading there. Human life is sacred because it bears the likeness of God. We see from these passages that innocent blood spilt on the ground by man cries out to God against the slayer and demands the slayer's blood. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. We read the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment is thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not kill, which forbids murder. It did not forbid killing in God-directed Old Testament warfare and capital punishment. You know, God has never given man the freedom to murder others. Throughout the Old Testament, we have examples of men who murdered and the consequences the consequences were painfully high. We just read about Cain. He killed Abel. He was a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. We have the example of Moses and how he killed that Egyptian. And because of that, he had to flee into the wilderness for 40 years. Um, we read about David and how his the deal with uh, Bathsheba and how he had her husband killed. And because of that, um, the child that Bathsheba had died and all the, the grief and the, the trouble that came with that. Human life is sacred. Human life has always been sacred from the beginning of time. Let's now consider warfare in the Old Testament. In looking at warfare in the Old Testament, there's one thing that we must keep in mind, and that is non-resistance was not taught to the nation Israel. You see, Israel was a civil nation, and we too must understand that neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament makes non-resistance a civil ethic or a civil requirement. And you could turn to Romans 13 and read one through six, um, those verses explains how the civil government works. And I would like to read verse 4 of Romans 13. It says, For he is the minister of God, and that's talking about the government, to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. You see, non-resistance is a doctrine that finds expression 
in the Church of Jesus Christ. The Church of Jesus Christ is distinctly separated from the civil government. We believe in separation of church and state. And this belief is foundational for the doctrine of non-resistance. We believe in a two-kingdom concept, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And he says, if my kingdom was of this world, then would my servants fight. So we must recognize that no nation under human leadership in our sinful world can operate on the principles of non-resistance. When God gave Old Testament saints the command to kill, they were expected to follow the command to the letter of the law. Along with the command to kill came detailed instructions. And let's, let's look at one example of this. Turn to 1 Samuel 15. I'll be reading some from this chapter. But here in this account, God is speaking through the prophet Samuel. And notice in verse 3, the detailed instructions. I'll read 1 through 3 of 1 Samuel 15. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Then said the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not, but slay both men and women, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And so they went to war. And we'll pick up reading again in verse 8. We have what Saul did. Verse 8, And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refused, that they destroyed utterly. And so, verse 13 and following, Samuel confronts Saul for not following God's instructions. And Saul had many excuses. He blames the people. But we see that Samuel held Saul accountable for his actions. And so we'll pick up reading again in verse 23, or verse 22, and read through 26. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is, a, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. 
Now therefore I pray thee, pardon my sin, and turn again with me, that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. Now for Saul and his men, this was more, this was more than just a war with another nation, but a command to bring an entire people to death. The war was to utterly, utterly destroy the Amalekites, the army, the civil population, their possessions, and even their livestock. It was to be a total blotting out of a nation of people. This destruction of humanity can be justified only by seeing it as the command of God. You know, there is no other authority that can authorize such a destruction of humanity. And so there's only one conclusion, and that is the Amalekites were more than enemies of Israel. They were enemies of God himself. The command to destroy the Amalekites placed Saul and his men under a moral obligation. This order to utterly destroy were sacred orders. To follow through was an act of obedience to God. And how sad it was that Saul did not see it that way. And we see in this story that Saul paid dearly for not following instructions. It cost him his kingdom. The consequences for not following God's instructions here followed him all the way to the grave. God commanded warfare in Old Testament times with serious business. It was serious business. And I had to think of Achan. You know, he was one man out of a thousand. One man who took of the accursed thing. And it says there that the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. And then you know how that story went. They took him, they took his family, they took him out, they stoned him. And after they were stoned, we have that verse. It says that the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. We know that in Old Testament times, there were things that God winked at. There were things that God allowed. But when it came to war and the details that surrounded war, there was nothing winked at. War was serious business. And for a war to be a success, it had to be God commanded. It was not the undertaking of any individual. And it was very important that they had their act together spiritually. When they would go out to war, and if they didn't have their act together spiritually, they could almost be where they were defeated. Old Testament warfare was a revelation of the true God. Turn, if you would, to Exodus chapter 14. I'd like to uh, start reading at verse 26. Exodus 14, 26. I'll read through 31. In these verses, the, the children of Israel have just passed through the Red Sea. 
and they're on the other side and they look back and they see the Egyptians coming through the water or coming through the sea in hot pursuit. And so let's start reading Exodus 14, verse 26. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thy hand over the sea, that the waters may come again unto the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled against it, and the Lord overthrown the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. But the children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And I notice verse 31. And the Lord's, I'm sorry. And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. And now let's keep reading in chapter 15. I'd like to read the first three verses. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him an habitation, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. The Lord is a man of war. What does that show us about God? What does that show us about God? It shows us that he is a God of justice. In the Old Testament times, God often brought immediate judgment on sin. And today, God is long-suffering. You don't see that as much. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But yet we know that God has not changed. God is still a God of judgment. He's still a God of justice. Sin will be judged. Let's now look at several examples of non-resistance typified in the Old Testament. Turn, if you would, to Proverbs 25. I'd like to read Proverbs 25, 21, and 22. Now, after reading the story of, of Saul and how they were commanded to wipe out the Amalekites, and now we read some of these accounts, it, it's, it almost seems like a contradiction, but yet it's very interesting, and here's where we rest in the fact that God is sovereign and that God is good. But Proverbs 25, 21 and 22, if thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he be thirsty, give him water to drink, for thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord 
shall reward thee. That sounds like something out of the New Testament, doesn't it? All right, turn over to Exodus 23. I'd like to read Exodus 23, 4 through 5. Exodus 23, verse 4. If thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. If thou see the ass of him that hateth thee lying under his burden, and wouldest forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. Another type that we find in the Old Testament is Isaac digging wells. Isaac's story is found in Genesis 26. We're not going to turn there, but we'll just talk about it a little. But Isaac, he's digging a well. And here comes the herdsmen, and they claim it. And so he goes off and he digs another well. And he digs this well by hand. He's not using a truck with an auger and all that. And here comes the herdsman. And so he moves off. And he digs another well. A beautiful example, beautiful type of New Testament teaching. Another example is Joseph forgiving his brothers. You can find that story in Genesis 45 if you want to look it up later. But there again is another beautiful type. We know about Joseph and how he was mistreated by his brothers. They sold him into, well, first they threw him into a pit and then they sold him to the Egyptians and, and how that all went and how he spent time in prison. And then later he helps his brothers. And forgives them. Another type that we find in the Old Testament is the tribe of Levi. The Levites were a special tribe of God's own, even among the Jews. The Levites were in charge of caring for the temple. They transported the temple from place to place to place. They took care of the things that pertained to the tabernacle. The Levites did not go to war. The Levites and their distinctiveness typify New Testament saints. The Apostle Peter brings out this comparison in his writings. You can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. I like to read 5 and 9. And listen, what, listen to what Peter says and how he writes. Ye also, and that's talking about New Testament saints, as lively stones <clears throat> are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And then verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, <clears throat> a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Old Testament foundations for non-resistance. You know, this morning I'm afraid we've only scratched the surface. 
there's so much that could be said. There, there are so many places you could go. I just basically feel like just scratch the surface with just the tip of the iceberg, like they say. But I have a quote here from Dean Taylor. It's taken from his book, A Change of Allegiance. And Dean says this, the kingdom of God continues to march forward. Empire after empire have come and gone. Nations have been raised and nations have fallen. But the kingdom of God has remained. And then Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. We'll call for a song.